0: Yeah, before we start, I guess uh, we should just uh, say uh, good luck to Fake Toshi and know his COPA trial starts this week.
1: Of course, Fake Toshi is Craig Stephen Wright, an Australian tax criminal and serial scammer who has engaged in multiple legal cases with Bitcoin developers and other in the Bitcoin space in an attempt to legally bully individuals into recognizing him as Satoshi Nakamoto so that he can use that platform to promote his altcoin Bitcoin Satoshi vision and I guess eventually try to demand copyright from crypto companies and individuals using Bitcoin and other blockchain technology. However, he has been trying to desperately settle the case prior to the start of the trial. So I wonder if that bodes well for him.
0: I I can't imagine because there is such a copious amount of fraudulent evidence. As we record, it's just a couple of days away. So I would imagine by the time we gather together, we'll have more details. Craig's claiming that this settlement is the opportunity for everybody to just walk away before it gets real ugly and his super new evidence is unveiled. We'll see. I, I mean, I'll be popping the popcorn.
1: I was also reading an interesting housing report on housing in the United States from Harvard University. And the TLDR is that Homelessness and lack of housing availability is just about stagnant wages in an inflationary environment. I mean, there are some other factors. Zoning makes housing development more expensive. So there's some marginal things that could be improved to encourage home builders to produce more houses. But The main issue seems to just be that we're in an inflationary environment, housing is a fixed asset, it has an investment value as well as a utility value, and that investment value rises as inflation and uncertainty around world events and government policy increases. I think this is quite obvious to people who have listened to this podcast before, but it ties into a bunch of other questions. I also read an article in The Economist 2 weeks ago about why are Americans so gloomy? What's going on? Because the economy is so great, employment is up, and then at the end of the article they briefly mention, well, it is true that inflation is higher than wage growth. But come on, you know, what's the big deal? And I think that's the key here, that current inflation measures mark inflation solidly below 4%, sometimes below 3% on a monthly basis. But if you use even the 1990s measure of inflation. Inflation over the past 12 months has been over 10%. So who's right? I would say that the answer is probably somewhere in the middle maybe, in that obviously not everyone buys the US CPI basket of goods. So if you bought the US CPI basket of goods, maybe you would only experience 3% inflation. That said, it's impossible to buy that basket because in order to prevent changes in mortgage rates from dominating the CPI composition, and so turning the CPI into sort of a dependent variable on the Fed funds rate and U.S. Federal Reserve monetary policy, they have to perform a lot of adjustments. And I think the most famous one is, I think it's called homeowners earned income or something like that. And, and the idea is that if you own a house, you're actually paying rent to yourself, which is obviously not how housing works at all, because it's a completely different situation from having cash flows to pay for renting a nice house versus- You don't walk
0: away with a profit when you're paying your mortgage.
1: Exactly. Versus inheriting a house or something. And so there's a whole different context around that. But the thing I'm getting at is that one reason that I think a lot of mainstream news is a bit confused about why the U.S. population or, or maybe even globally is so... Unhappy with their political class? Why are they unhappy with this so called economic growth after COVID? Is that there's a recency bias to statistics that makes news and government very focused on recent periods. What I mean is most GDP numbers are what was the growth over the past month, over the past quarter, over the past year.
0: What you're saying rings true because I'm looking at the true inflation dashboard and they have had just spot on numbers. And when you zoom out and do an aggregated compound inflation rate since January, January of 2020, the compound rate is 22.33% inflation.
1: Right. If you've experienced 20% inflation, your purchasing power is devalued by 80%. Even middle-class incomes would be feeling that and might be suffering a little. And if you're on the lower end of the income spectrum, I think you're probably at the point where you'll vote for anyone who promises to increase your living standards. And so I think that's probably why a lot of the news and discussion kind of misses the problem because we actually, I think we need to go back to 2019 at least to sort of get a sense of where we should be versus the the COVID slump and then recovering from that that deep slump during COVID has just screwed up all of the sort of more recent Time measures of inflation, growth, unemployment, etc.
0: It's not a very positive way to look at the numbers. It's much more positive to look at the more recent numbers. Um, you know, I had a real two moments this week, Dad, that really viscerally demonstrated to me, and I think to anyone who watches these videos, that we are living in two different countries right now. The first video I saw was, as as we record, the most current Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you've heard about this, but they did a, a weekend update skit making fun of Donald Trump for having a senior moment because he used the term debanking a couple of times and they thought this was ridiculous debanking we've never heard of this term debanking he must he must have alzheimer's because he used the word debanking multiple times guys it's hilarious who's ever heard of debanking that was the entire premise of the skit don't
1: throw stones in a glass house i mean accusing donald trump of alzheimer's moments if your candidate is joe biden seems like a hard way to go
0: but it demonstrates that they are so privileged financially that they've never even heard the term debanking before. So much so that a group of them could write that skit, yeah, or even if it's the Weekend Update, and only one. I mean, it's just incredible. Another moment, though, just briefly, that happened the same week that I thought was shocking, and you can find video for this online too. Is Gavin Newsom was on a Zoom call, and he was chatting with press before an official event started, and somebody was recording the screen with their iPhone, and Gavin Newsom recounts a story from earlier that day where he went to Target, and while he was there at Target, Target cashing out for $385 worth of goods somebody right next to him stole something, walked right past Gavin Newsom and all the staff and walked right out the door. And Gavin asked the gal, did he just steal that? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't stop them. And then Gavin Newsom asked, the governor of California asked, why don't you stop them? And her response was, the governor has deprioritized that. And nope, we don't stop any of them now. He's the governor. She didn't realize he was the governor. And he was shocked by this. He calls her manager over to chew, to chew her out to her manager about this policy and to argue that they have the 10th toughest shoplifting policies in the country. And and, you know, what's ironic about that is that this is now happening in Washington state, even in my tiny little town, which is an hour north of Seattle, they do not stop people from shoplifting anymore. And when that started happening here, everybody said, "Oh, it's just like in California." That was the common, "Oh, yeah, like they do in California." That's happening here now. And how could how could people up in my little town refer to this as what is happening in California? And Gavin Newsom doesn't even know what's going on. Now he's either lying or he's living in a completely different reality, like the writers were that were making fun of Donald Trump for having a senior moment for using the term "debanking." We they are so privileged. They're not even aware the stuff is going on.
1: I think that the shoplifting thing is kind of complicated in the sense that some of that shoplifting, especially at supermarkets like Target and... Costco
0: and wherever. Fred Meyer in my town.
1: You don't really want to stop it because if you've got really desperate people who are stealing food, I mean, it doesn't feel good to criminalize stealing food. That's literally the plot of *Le Miserable*. The guy goes to jail because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his sister or something.
0: The flip side is, you know what the first thing Gavin said after all that? Why am I paying $385 for this stuff if he can just walk out with it for free?
1: Well, I don't know, Gavin. What was that person's income?
0: To your previous point, this disconnect is why people can't understand why people feel crushed by 22.33% aggregate inflation over the last two years. Because to them, they're so well off that they could absorb that and it doesn't affect them at all. And right. they probably have assets that have appreciated such that it does actually offset the difference.
1: Exactly. And, and actually, that's what Arthur Hayes gets into, because wealth distribution, at least in the United States, is so screwed up that you have the top 10% of the population owning something like 60% of total wealth in that economy. And these are the people that pay for politicians and they matter.
0: And they're the people that own the media. And let's be frank, the people that are the news actors also make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So they're also part of that.
1: And there's actually an interesting instability in this because even though a very small percentage of the population are the only ones who economically matter. They need to spend money on marketing so that their political candidates can receive the votes of the lower 90% of the population. But they also don't actually want the political change that would increase costs on the top and redistribute them to the bottom. So it's an interesting paradox of the current democratic social model. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on February 2nd, 2024. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, remotely with... It's me, it's
0: Chris. Thanks for joining us.
1: On today's podcast, we're going to discuss a new White House order to register all Bitcoin mining in a very granular fashion. We have an interesting blog post from Arthur Hayes that gets into deep topics of income distribution, government income, supply chain disruptions in the Panama Canal and Red Sea, what this means for inflation, and all that leads to his conclusion, Bitcoin will go down and then up, maybe. Also, the bankrupt Chinese real estate developer Evergrande has finally been ordered to commence liquidation of its assets by a Hong Kong court. This is a fascinating tipping point in the long story of the Chinese real estate bubble that represents something like 70% of private savings in China. And so this could be a very dramatic unwind with international repercussions as the Chinese financial system and consumers take massive losses potentially. We'll see what the government does about that. The US Federal Reserve's bank term funding program is going to stop issuing new loans on March 11th, while U.S. banks are still under financial pressure because the fundamental issue of their treasury savings portfolios being underwater has not been solved. And then in Bitcoin Education, we have Bitcoin Optic 287 that covers a new replaced by fee model by Gloria Zhao and more discussion of Peter Todd's concerns around exogenous fees and how that could lead to mining centralization among other things. And then we have some boosts and that's our show.
0: I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Especially those boosts. Don't forget it is a value for value podcast. So if you get some value out of it, please consider sending us a boost and a message. Let's start with this White House edict that forces registration upon Bitcoin miners. It's really fresh as we go on the air. It just came out last night. And it gives Bitcoin mining operations essentially a matter of days to respond with a comprehensive registry of their equipment, its power draw, their relationships with power companies, their share of power companies' usage, their GPS location, and more. And if they don't comply, they'll be fined over $10,000 a day until they come within compliance. And this is being issued as an emergency by the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which, Dad, I have to be honest, I didn't even realize we had a EIA administ- uh, group administration whatever department, but this is what they do: is they survey and collect information about major industries' use of energy from uh, you know, natural gas uh, sources and uses, uh, um, electricity, of course, directly, but all types, coal, nuclear, uh, all that kind of stuff. They they track all of that, I guess, to some degree, um, and and collect it as a data warehouse for the U.S. government, building registries of big users and consumers of energy.
1: Now, before we get. Bit outraged. Do you know if the EIA does energy surveys of a lot of emerging industries that might be large energy consumers, for example, are they doing this to data
0: centers and AI companies as well? Not presently. I know in the past, they gave a go at data centers and determined that the data center type of workload wasn't necessarily exactly what they needed to track. and Instead, they needed to track the main power sources. But I, And I don't know why that differs with Bitcoin. Um, seemingly, though, uh, it's it's otherwise industry use, not so much data centers. And I don't know of any emerging industry where they've issued an emergency just because it's gotten popular. I mean, that's their essential argument here. So what the EIA is arguing is that the price of Bitcoin has gone up 50% in the last year. And that means they need to be concerned all of a sudden about the energy use of Bitcoin. And it's urgent.
1: And I think that we've discussed on the pod previously that there isn't necessarily a strong relationship between Bitcoin price and energy consumption, because the energy consumption of Bitcoin mining has to do with the efficiency of Bitcoin mining units and the relative price of energy in the area where mining happens. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong about this because I'm not a mining expert, is that Bitcoin mining cannot really compete with even industrial uses of electricity, and certainly not with residential use and commercial building use of electricity. Because Bitcoin mining is such an unprofitable business that you have to have your electricity practically free in order to make profits as a Bitcoin miner, because it's just that competitive. And so free energy only occurs when there's surplus energy on a grid. And the grid operator basically needs a place to dump that energy to prevent problems on the grid. And we've also talked about how our current model of power generation and distribution requires that a functioning power grid needs to basically overproduce energy or electricity by about 50% of sort of projected demand. Because they need to have excess energy in the grid to handle jumps or leaps in demand that can happen very quickly when, say, people turn on their air conditioners because it's hot. Or their heaters because it's cold. And as a result, there's always sort of excess power in energy grids that needs a place to live or a place to be dumped. And Bitcoin mining is a sort of uniquely advantageous consumer of this energy because you can turn Bitcoin mining on and off very rapidly. They can scale their demand very quickly given grid conditions. And so Bitcoiners have argued that Bitcoin mining facilities are actually the natural friend of grid operators because they can provide a consumer of energy of last resort.
0: I became to better appreciate that when see this is it's a really complex thing and it's not something us average consumers even realize there are extremely heavy, extremely expensive like $30,000 units that are energy sinks that these outfits buy and when they have excess energy they literally buy these machines that they can dump the energy into. <laughs>
1: so I guess they just create heat or something and yeah, they radiate yeah. that heat?
0: And they just burn it essentially. Talk
1: about global warming
0: right? Well and when you realize that kind of stuff is a regular practice or methane offgassing, and you, when you realize all that flaring is just dumping methane into the atmosphere and we could be capturing it at a, you know, 90% plus efficiency uh, you start to appreciate the different kind of load that Bitcoin mining is and that the economic 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 incentives that force it that way. And you got to also appreciate that Bitcoin is new in this area. So they have to come in with hand in hat in these negotiations. They're a wonderful customer for these power companies because they make it profitable to invest in more energy production. And if we want EVs and we want electric heat and we want to have a stable grid and we want to onshore manufacturing... We need more power. We need just more capacity in general. And we finally have this buyer of last resort who's always willing to turn things off when they need to, to curtail. It's a fantastic relationship. Unfortunately, the EIA's registry forms that you have to fill out have no accommodations for these types of relationships at all. Nothing in there at all allows for the mining operation to quantify that aspect of their relationship with the power company. It's all about how much power do you use? How much of of their power that they're producing are you consuming? And there's nothing in there about curtailment or even any factoring of curtailment at all. They do mention it briefly in the introductory threat, letter where they threaten the miners they do mention they know about curtailment but nowhere in there is their inner accounting or al- allowing for it
1: and they also want latitude and longitude coordinates of every facility that you register and you you have to register every commercial facility in the United States so not to be paranoid but this is the first step to mining bans and confiscation of these facilities because the only other place in the world that had a systemic, drive to register every mining facility was Venezuela, and then they were subsequently seized by their government. So... This is pretty scary, I would think, if I were a U.S. Bitcoin miner.
0: I think we're hypersensitive to it because it's it's such a critical attack because it's Bitcoin's peg to the real world. And it is a soft spot to a degree that if I were a nation state and I were going to attack Bitcoin, along with all the legal stuff and all of the banning self-hosted wallets that Elizabeth Warren's going for, I would also absolutely attack the mining industry, especially if I had a environmentally friendly camouflage that I could use to do it. Because we've already said over and over again, from the White House down, that climate change is an existential crisis. And if you believe that there is nothing, and Biden just said that this as of recently as like a week and a half ago, there's nothing more threatening to all of humanity... Not a nuclear bomb, nothing more than climate change. Well, then that pretty much grants you authority to do anything in the name of saving humanity. So, you know, it gives you the perfect cover to go in there and take emergency actions and get this all wrapped up as quick as possible, especially, you know, when the economy is sort of on the verge. I think it's a brilliant move, actually. I'm surprised they haven't done it sooner. I guess they needed to wait till the industry got large enough. And what's remarkable about it is there's no conversation about the AI data centers. Even though we have years of curtailment data that shows it really works, and we have the Texas grid that's been stabilized last two years, because of the curtailment programs, the grid has remained up. They haven't had to do rolling blackouts. It's a big success. And yet none of that's in there. I think think that's remarkable, even though we have on the record that to support the amount of data centers that have come online since the beginning of COVID, we have seen a continuation, uh, and a reversal of shutting down of coal plants. So continuing coal plants or stopping shutdown plans, plans specifically in like Virginia, which has been dubbed the data center alley, which has specifically benefited from the boom in artificial intelligence quote, turbocharging electricity use according to Bloomberg, and they say that the power companies have been struggling to keep up and that the environmental regulators even considered a plan to fire up diesel generators to help back these AI data centers. Similar thing is happening in Kansas City. There are AI data centers there and the other one that's a massive consumer that is forcing them to leave their coal plants online, electrical, electric field, EV battery manufacturing. It's under construction in this Kansas City area, and they need a massive amount of electricity and water to do it, and it's caused... The power use in this one area to triple since 2022 to as much as 390 terawatt hours by the end of the decade, according to the Boston Consulting Group, for this just one area in Kansas City. And that's just in the last couple of years. And that's not on their radar. But Bitcoin going up 50% in price is enough to cause an emergency, even though there is no demonstrable price to energy use. In fact, if anything, hash rate often goes ahead of price, and you cannot necessarily correlate, like Dad was saying, hash rate to energy use because you can have an S9 on the rack for five years and swap them out during the bear market with S19s. You're using roughly the same amount of power, but you have an extremely more efficient ASIC in there.
1: And hash rate spikes. And so it's a very fragile relationship to say that Bitcoin's price means that energy consumption is going to spike. And we've seen that through Bitcoin's history because a lot of stupid criticism of Bitcoin was, look at the growth of Bitcoin mining power consumption. By 2020, Bitcoin mining is is going to be consuming 70% of the energy in the world. And that obviously didn't happen. It actually, you know, Bitcoin mining energy consumption grew from a base of zero to now a consumption that is well under 1% of global energy production. And as we've just said, in every grid around the world, 40 to 50% of energy generation is wasted. So do we really care? If you didn't have a sort of negative take on Bitcoin, like like, clearly not. The things that produce carbon emissions that are, according to this model of climate crisis, the number one threat to humanity, are not the end users of power generation. It's the power generation itself. And so, if you've got a problem with emitting carbon from your base load energy sources and your, your energy production infrastructure, well, guess what? That's a government policy problem. You had bad policy, and as a result, you have a lot of fossil fuel generation, which you claim is a Existential threat. And just to shift the conversation a little, I think this relates to the failure in many ways of this concept of green infrastructure and sort of leaning in on wind and solar to reduce fossil fuel consumption. Because the leading economy that really embraced this model was Germany. And what we saw in Germany was as wind and solar capacity was built out, an equal amount of capacity of natural gas burning power was also built and natural gas does burn cleaner than coal but it is essentially the same type of fossil fuel generation.
0: You know, what we're also seeing right now in this very moment is proof that the investment in green energies and a decreased investment in dense energies has led us to a massive problem because we are trying to onshore, part of the, uh, you know, CHIPS Investment Act, part of the Inflation Reduction Act, quote unquote, is all about onshore investing. Well, that uses a lot more power. We also, the Biden administration, is desperate to get people to switch to EVs that requires substantially more power. And so we are seeing... Now the issues of not investing, and we we can't execute on these things. And I think AI is the perfect example where something can come along in a matter of two years that is supposedly a generational technology that's going to change the landscape, and it needs power fast, and we can't accommodate for it. Uh, there is this uh, consulting group called Grid Strategies, and they're doing projections for peak usage during the summer months, and they see a massive, massive deficit in energy, and enough that there's going to likely be in the next couple of years rolling blackouts and their math shows that we are still twenty billion a year short in investing in long transmission lines. Nothing he says is really being spent on them now. There's like a few bill, I think, no, a few mil in the in the uh, in one of one of Biden's spending bills. Uh, but you need twenty bill a year, and there's a few mill in there.
1: And if you really hate Bitcoin mining, this is how you get rid of it. You find stranded energy sources and you invest billions of dollars to build transmission lines. Transmission lines that connects it to the consumers of energy that you deem socially acceptable, probably cities and suburbs and factories.
0: Just one last point, just to really drive home the scale of difference between Bitcoin mining and this data center explosion. In Virginia, which bills itself as like one of the more popular areas for these data centers, in one county, 80 new data centers have been built since 2019. And these are massive, dad. These are massive, massive facilities with massive power and water requirements. And these AI loads cannot be curtailed like Bitcoin mining can because Bitcoin is a decentralized network.
1: So should we be waiting for the AI data center registration bill? Or are we going to just assume that everyone is doing AI?
0: No, oh, well, yeah, if you're hex. Uh, I think the miners are going to fight this to a degree. They They do have to start filling out the registry and comply. But some of the things in here require you to dox the contract you have with the power company. ERCOT, for example, specifically disallows sharing any details about contracts with any of their customers. So they would have to violate their contract with ERCOT to comply with this registry.
1: And ERCOT is a Texas organization. And so that might not go well with the federal government because the state of Texas is already seems to be flirting with secession or some sort of rebellion against the federal government as they've been recruiting a local militia to secure the Texas border. And it seems that that militia might come into violent confrontation with the federal government if the federal government decides to
0: intervene there. I think you have that. So you have the issue that you're doxing these details of these contracts that are confidential and that are, you know, worth millions of dollars. And also they have to dox their location information. So that's a security and privacy because that'd be like doxing, you know, bank vaults. And then the last thing is, since there is no association between price and energy usage, you know, just look at any random pump or dump, it's such a weak argument that you figure it has to be capable of being challenged in court. Not a lawyer, obviously, but just looking at it on these, the doxing in the different areas, the extremely weak justification for the emergency, the extreme above and beyond nature of it that other data center loads don't have to go through. I think all of that makes it a pretty weak case. But the the, the thing that's on the EIA side is that the miners have such a short window of time to respond. They have something like 10 days that they don't really have time to do anything but respond. They don't have time to stop and fight because the EIA is seemingly completely within their legal rights to request this. And it really shows you these state of emergencies can be such political bullcrap.
1: Most rollbacks of civil liberties happen during states of emergency. These are not plebiscites. There's not a A vote on these rules—they just happen, and they never seem to be rolled
0: back. As a protest, I am—I have bought a S9 with a 120 volt adapter, and it won't make me much. But you know, the same reason I run a node, I'm going to run a miner because the Bitcoin network needs all of us to help with decentralizing it, and they're going to have to come after all of us. And maybe they will. I don't think they could make it, you know, through through an administration. But you know, by the time they got to me, there'd be a whole other administration in there.
1: Well, one person who is beyond the U.S. government's reach it would seem, after completing his house arrest, is Arthur Hayes our favorite BitMEX co-founder, who has a new blog post, Yellen or Talkin, with some very disturbing art of Janet Yellen. And this is an interesting, slightly rambly analysis of quite a few factors that I think tie into our conversation that leads to sort of Arthur's trading position. And I think the broad picture that Arthur is pointing at is that the current S&P 500 rally and Bitcoin rally is essentially hopium because the fundamental instability of the U.S. banking system has not been solved. And this instability comes from the fact that after the COVID inflationary impulse, the Fed hiked the Fed funds rate faster than ever before in history. And because of the mathematics of bond portfolios, if you bought a bond that was yielding a low interest rate, like 1%, and then interest rates are hiked up to over 4%, the 1% bond on your portfolio Leo if you sold it today, you would have to discount the price so that the price discount turns it into a 4% yield for the buyer, if that makes sense. And as a result, a lot of US regional banks that essentially hold their reserves in US treasury bonds now had a negative net present value of these portfolios. Now, this is not a problem if you can hold these bonds to maturity. If you don't have to sell it, you're not going to lose money, at least in nominal terms. The problem is that regional banks actually often do have to sell these treasuries in order to meet withdrawals and other obligations. And as a result, because three banks collapsed, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic, the Federal Reserve created a new acronym called the BTFP, Bank Term Funding Program, It would accept as collateral an underwater U.S. treasury and then issue a one-year loan against it at face value. So it was essentially a non-market buyer of these underwater treasuries that would serve to recapitalize these banks and hide their losses for one year. Well, that program, my sense is, has become politically toxic because this is a straight up bank bailout. And it's hard to design a program like this without creating unintended consequences and arbitrage opportunities. And so some participants in this program are clearly using the program to get cheap money to then perform an arbitrage trade, which is, it's a free money trade. There's no risk in this sort of financial arrangement because you're a privileged player that has access to these Federal Reserve programs. Obviously, normal people can't do this. As a result, the Fed seems to to be keen on stopping new loan issuances from this program on March 11th. But we can already see there's been a community bank in New York that seems to have a credit problem on their balance sheet. It might not be directly related to treasuries, but it's sort of the same thing. You have a balance sheet full of loans. The interest rates being paid on these loans are below the current market interest rate. You can't really sell them. You're in the same situation as treasuries, except a little worse because commercial and personal loans are not homogeneous products like treasuries, and there's a smaller market for them. Fewer entities that are willing to purchase them off your balance sheet. And as a result, you're going to take a larger haircut cut if you have to sell these assets for short-term liquidity. So it's kind of an interesting setup. You would think that the Fed would sort of shoulder the political toxicity of a program that's an overt bank buyout and keep it going because it seems like the banking system, especially at the regional level in the U.S., is still pretty vulnerable. They seem to be, for some political reason, motivated to shut this program down. So this is the first part of Arthur's observation, that we have kind of a short-term market stimulus in terms of hope, but that's really not warranted. His other observation is that because of the distribution of wealth, i.e. financial assets, in the United States You can see that the top 10% of the US population in terms of wealth owns approximately 75% of all assets in the United States. And this creates some very weird incentives. Uh, One odd effect of this is as the US raises interest rates, it also increases tax revenue because these top 10 earners are the ones who really own. Assets that experience the distribution of higher interest rates in the US. So, this boosts short term government payrolls. But the problem is that as you increase interest rates, you're in a way benefiting the top 10% of society. But the joke is that 92% of debt in the economy is owned by the bottom 90%. And so, as you increase interest rates, you also increase the debt burden and crush the lower 90% of the US population. I haven't seen data about other countries, but this is probably broadly true across the world. So this means that this sort of anti-inflationary policy has... uh seriously increase the debt burden on the lower 90% of society in the US by wealth when the whole goal of crushing inflation was to sort of make life more affordable for the plebs. So there's, there's really some contradictions here.
0: Yeah. And so Arthur's thinking that when this BTFP wraps up in March, that we're going to have a mini financial crisis, is what he's saying, that the Fed will actually have to cut rates sooner than they are jawboning about right now. A couple of days ago, Chairman Powell was out there saying That, uh, you know, maybe a few months from now, kind of implying June might be when we see rate cuts, which I think it's just interesting that it's just built in now. But anyways, um, Arthur's arguing otherwise, that we will see these regional banks start to fail. And um, he thinks that Yellen and JPOW are betting that the markets won't let them fail, that that they'll keep, you know, they'll keep the faith. But I don't know. We've already seen 685 million Drain out of regional bank stocks just with the uh, news of the uh, New York regional bank having a problem. Other regional bank stocks were immediately hit because I think the market is spooked. And I think what Arthur's saying is the whole the whole narrative around the Bitcoin price going sideways after the ETF because of the grayscale outflows is bull crap. He says it's bull crap because if you look at the net inflows overall, there's been an almost a net inflow of like a billion dollars into these ETFs. So that's all been gobbled up. He thinks instead Bitcoin is predicting this mini crash. You know, whoever is buying and selling on Bitcoin is predicting this little mini crash coming up after the uh, BTFP wraps up.
1: He finishes on a pretty interesting section on supply chain inflation because It seems that this current conflict in Yemen with the Houthis, who are firing missiles at some container ships in support of the Palestinian cause or or the Hamas cause, actually those are separate things, sorry, uh, in the Gaza Strip, is severely constricting trade through the Suez Canal because there's basically a choke point. The Gulf of Aden connects to the Indian Ocean, but if you go up the Gulf of Aden, you have to squeeze through, squeeze between the small gap between Ethiopia and Yemen, and then you enter the Red Sea. Americans are probably familiar with the Red Sea because it was once parted by Moses in the uh, Old Testament. And then you continue up the Red Sea to the Suez Canal. So what's the problem here? Well, well, basically, if you're shipping goods to Europe from Southeast Asia, it takes a 26-day trip to get to Rotterdam if you go via the Gulf of Aden, Red Sea, Suez Canal. If you go around the bottom of Africa, it's a 36-day trip. So you've actually increased supply chain time and costs by almost 50% because these rocket attacks, this asymmetric rocket and drone warfare in the uh, Red Sea, is incredibly
0: difficult to interdict. Right. And we're throwing $50,000 missiles at $500 drones. Not 50,000. 2.3 million dollar missiles is it? after is it? tiny oh drones. God. Yeah, that is uh woof. How do you that's infl- that's inflationary right there, isn't it? But the thing is, it's not
1: just goods from Southeast Asia that are becoming more expensive. And the thing is, as you increase the time to bring these goods to market, you need more goods in the pipeline. It you know, it isn't it isn't a linear thing this is sort of a, a non-linear process of cost and supply and and meeting that you know it's it's very it's actually a bit complicated but this is also a massive energy route from saudi arabia to europe for American listeners who don't really care about what happens in Europe and these inflationary pressures, something sort of similar is happening in Central America. Because due to a lack of rain and a drought and some other issues, the water level in the Panama Canal is super low, which means that a lot of shipping that could previously use this route to, again, cut off huge amounts of shipping time, bringing goods to the American East Coast, they now have to be rerouted around the the bottom of South America, which is a similar increase in supply chain costs and time. And you might say, okay, well, why not just land all the boats in Long Beach, California, and Many land bridge them to the center of the US or the East Coast with the rail link there. Well, US ports are, and then that port in particular, is very over capacity. And those capacity constraints mean that then container ships have to line up, and this can add weeks to the journey. So there's no way around this, even if you're not burning more bunker diesel to go around the bottom of South America. So this is a structural inflationary issue, and it can't be solved by monetary policy. It can only be solved by controlling the weather and making it rain, in the case of the Panama Canal, and resolving military tensions in the Middle East in the case of the Suez Canal. And obviously, both those things are pretty impossible at the moment. So this is quite a setup for more cost pressures in a U.S. election year. And Arthur believes that The eventual outcome of these stresses will be, again, large interventions in the financial system by both the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve. And so he is temporarily bearish, but then he's going to get crazy bullish and he's going to start loading up on bonk if he uh, thinks that an intervention and liquidity injection is coming. So that's Arthur.
0: And what Arthur also points out is when that liquidity injection does come, the disparity only grows between the bottom and the top, you know, 49, 1%, like it really, it really only just gets worse. And as time goes on, the bottom 10% ends up holding most of the debt, bears most of the burden of inflationary cycles and all of this. And the rich just get richer because they have the means and access to those assets. They have the set to invest. So they're ready for a nice liquidity event. They, they, you know, they know how to navigate that because they just spent the last 15 years training, so there are all there's so much as they like to say dry powder On the sidelines, ready to go.
1: I think the TLDR here is you can expect more tumultuous politics. I don't know if we use the term populism on this podcast. I think it's a little judgmental, but I think that is coming in spades because the fundamental issue is that there is a massive disconnect in incentives between different groups in the US society and likely in other countries around the world. And if you have groups with very different situations, That need very different policies to satisfy them and make their lives better, then you need to come to consensus on trade-offs and a a deal that everyone can hate but accept. And you need social cohesion and buy-in and sort of a shared something to do that. And I guess I'm just not seeing what that thing is that would make a deal happen, at least in the United States.
0: Yeah, so you distract them with bread and circuses and social issues that will never be solved. Arthur says this, I feel like this hits, quote, U.S. politics, in a nutshell, is a circus whereby the rich buy ads to raise awareness for their favorite clients who in turn dances and sings for the votes of the plebs so biden must hand out goodies to the rich and to the poor alike to win at a cynical macro level the strategy is to pump the stock market owned by the rich thereby increasing the tax receipts and then provide handouts to the poor paid out of the loot collected from the rich which you know of course That's his take. But the point he makes is the top 10% pay 74% of income tax simply just because that, you know, is mostly capital gains and they're taxing capital gains. So that's where he's getting the distribution uh, thing from. And I think his point is well taken that we really do have politicians that are just sort of picked by the wealthy and then they have to promise something and you know they they try to like square that as much as they can and so you see things like these lng uh, natural gas export bans which is obviously going to have an effect on the market can have a massive effect on the eu but it does please a couple of different contingencies of the biden voting bloc
1: or the trump voting bloc eventually because when he undoes it yeah let's be honest The major factor that unseats incumbent presidents is the state of the economy during their presidency. And even though The Economist and other commentators are insisting that the U.S. economy is in a good state, if you dig a little bit deeper, you can see that inflation has outpaced wage growth. And all job gains, almost literally all job gains have been part-time
0: work for a year. Right
1: no one who's working part-time or two part-time jobs in the US is going to be happy with the state of the economy. That's brutal.
0: Yeah, it is pretty brutal. That's why I'm surprised about the LNG export ban. I'm surprised around the executive orders that have just absolutely devastated open source innovation around AI. And I'm surprised they're attacking Bitcoin mining because we have structural issues that are basically a wet blanket on the economy. And then we are taking at a policy level, we're attacking the new innovation in the industry that could bring a new jobs and new revenue and be a new source of boom, we're preemptively attacking those at a regulatory level. So we're, we're really chewing at ourselves, both at a policy level and, and at the at the new innovation level at the same time. We're, we're chewing on both sides of the economy.
1: And I think that this is the state of incumbent incentives and stagnation, because I looked at two industry letters that were sent to the Biden White House about the LNG export slowdown, and they were from U.S. industry groups that are saying, listen, exporting this LNG overseas, yeah, that might make sense for LNG producers because they can get a higher price for it. But if you lock it into the US market and create a glut, that makes our manufacturing and chemical production businesses so much more profitable and we create jobs locally. So go ahead and lock it in. And the same thing with AI innovation. All of this regulation and fear-mongering around AI, it only serves to empower incumbent players like Microsoft or Google or Amazon who have whole compliance teams that can comply with burdensome regulation. They've already built that infrastructure it's a thing they do. Whereas new challengers to these existing monopolies that are clearly growing sort of fat, lazy, and consumer hostile and abusing their market power to extract more profits from people who use their services because they don't have alternatives to those services while stifling any challenge to that. So the creative destructive process of economic growth is being sabotaged by incumbent institutions and businesses lobbying to raise the gates and fill the moats against new competition, and growth comes from this new competition.
0: Well, this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast network, Jupiter Broadcasting, at jupiterbroadcasting.com A couple of fresh ones for you. In Linux Unplugged this last week, we got into Audio Bookshelf, which is a way to take your books and your ebooks sovereign, but also, it can be a self-hosted podcast platform as well. It's an episode where we run down Audio Bookshelf, we talk about what it does, and then get into how we installed it. That's Linux Unplugged 547, and then encoder radio five five fiver that's just three fives actually uh we uh, talk about apple's petulant response to uh, new regulations that they are that they are barely, barely complying with and making developers' lives absolutely hell. A great example of the incumbent who is just making things rough for newcomers. That's all over at jupiterbroadcasting.com.
1: Well, I'm really excited for Audio Bookshelf. Will that enable me to hoard podcasts locally on my NAS instead of having to download them to my phone and fill up that scarce memory?
0: The only thing that's missing at this point is the podcasting 2.0 stuff like that boost. I don't know if it does chapters. It might, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's why I won't be using it, but for like just archival saving them and then maybe just stream the ones you want on the phone. Could totes do that? I don't know.
1: Yeah, because there have been podcasts that have disappeared and you lose their archive.
0: Honestly, I don't have bits of my old Linux action show from, you know, forever ago, like 15 years ago. I have bits and pieces of it, but I don't have the whole thing anymore.
1: Well, when the FTX crisis was unfolding, I quickly downloaded all of the FTX podcast episodes and I have them locally. So if anyone (laughs) wants to dig into those to uncover more inside dealing and corruption and whatnot, contact me.
0: Dad, we could re will retool the show into a crime mystery show using clips from the uh, podcast.
1: If there were forty eight hours in the day, I would totally do
0: that. Well, we just do three episodes every nine months. That's how you do that. Maybe not. all right. Maybe we'll stick to this. That that is very unsatisfying.
1: Yeah, I have to say that a lot of the crypto mystery podcasts have been pretty unsatisfying. Like, the, yeah, come on, the missing crypto queen. It really petered out.
0: Most of these people are all just weird losers that just you know got lucky. And they're weirdos.
1: So th- Dr. Rouge, after stealing a billion dollars, is was probably dissolved in acid, frankly, seems to be my take. Yeah, out. that's
0: cool though. That's cool.
1: And then the Canadian guy who stole all the money from Quadriga CX customers, and then he conveniently dies. But it's also a weird story because his fiance who would have been the person who would help him stage his own death. She then gave back all the money she got. So how would they do that? I mean, would she just let him push it all onto her and then peace out to Southeast Asia? I don't know.
0: Well, and how did she get access to a portion of it, but not all of it? Did they have multiple walls? That's a are right. I mean, you know, I'm telling you, we'll retool. It'll be a long process, but we'll be the premier Crypto crime mystery podcast. The dad investigate. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, dad investigations. It sounds like I'm
1: yeah bullying horrible. potential boyfriends of my daughter or something.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of places you could go with it. So I think you probably got to re. We got to workshop that. We got to. We'll put a pin in it. Workshop. It. Put it in the parking lot.
1: Well, Gloria Zhao is workshopping an idea on the Delving Bitcoin forum that comes up in Bitcoin Object Newsletter 287, where she is talking about a new concept concept of replace by fee which would allow replacing a related transaction in the mempool if there's no conflict between the two transactions and i think the term conflicting in the, in this case means that the two transactions cannot exist in the same valid blockchain so one issue with rbf i guess is that if you make transactions and transaction replacement too complicated you could create a world of more chain splits where one miner mines one valid transaction, another miner mine's a different one. And now we have two chains and these two chains have to sort of race to create the next block and invalidate the other chain. Otherwise the miners on the losing chain lose all of their money. So I think this RBF conversation can get like really wonky and complicated. And I don't know if regular Bitcoin users particularly care, but when I read this sort of conversation and these considerations, I just think, this is an experiment. We are on an experiment right here. And it's miraculous that it works so well. But when you pop open the hood of Bitcoin Core and you look at how the sausage is made, I mean, that thing is knives all the way down. This is really hard.
0: Yeah. And- I'm grateful that there are those out there that n- are not only deeply, deeply, um, you know, into this and understand it, but also trying to make it better without making it too complex that we screw ourselves. Like that's a that's a very tight line to walk for something like RBF. And Gloria Zhao is probably the right person to do it. I'm just because these are the moments where you think, God, there's these people out there that are really making this really tight line all actually work. I, don't, I
1: just don't know how they don't get burned out because it seems like so thankless because everyone's probably screaming at you as you do. Doing- it because everyone's afraid that they'll break Bitcoin or something. This also relates to the cluster mempool proposal, which is a new way of associating unconfirmed transactions in the mempool into clusters. This is kind of a data science type technique to organize data. And the thinking is that This cluster approach to the mempool might enable better block creation, and that would make mining better, and therefore potentially make it easier to decentralize mining pools and block template creation. Because if you create the tooling at the Bitcoin core level to sort of easily, without too much compute, create block templates, it it lowers the hurdle to run your own mining pool or to create templates on your own node as a miner for Stratum v2 or something like that. And so this could remove a centralization issue in Bitcoin transaction confirmation, whereas currently there are a small number of mining pools. And while miners run mining units that hash, as you will when you get your S9, you're not creating the block template. So if your pool decides to censor transactions or something like that, all you can do is move to another pool. As a miner, you can't sort of reject that policy from the mining pool at this point.
0: I'm definitely going to want to hear the audience's suggestions on how I should set up. It's going to be a used 120 volt. I think it already has the brains firmware flashed on it, but I'm thinking I should probably reflash that. I'd love any tips. You know, How do I get this thing on the network if I don't have ethernet appropriately? What are your tips for the power, shrouds? Everything. Even pools. Should I consider ocean? I mean, I'm not going to be getting much, but it's my protest mine and I want it to be quiet. And then also this the garage is going to get kind of warm, I would imagine. So any tips there too? boost them in? I think that'd be great.
1: There is also a conversation about exogenous fees now applied to the op check template verify proposal for a Bitcoin opcode inclusion. And we covered exogenous fees previously, and the idea is that there's basically two types of fees, endogenous fees, where you just pay a fee to mine a transaction, and exogenous fees that can be paid outside of the normal band. And so one exogenous fee would be a mining pool, has a transaction accelerator, where if you had a transaction with too low a fee rate and it's stuck in the mempool you can call the mining pool and give them your visa card number and they'll accept a payment to just mine that transaction even though it doesn't make economic sense on on chain another idea is these anchor style lightning commitment transactions where you have lightning transactions that open channels and instead of having a channel closed transaction with a fixed fee you just have this anchor a small transaction fee that you can then bump with a another transaction like child pays repairing or something like that that allows you to always close a channel within the lightning network security timeout period by just increasing the fee rate instead of getting into the situation where if a mempool is full and your lightning closed transaction had an old fee rate that's too low it could time out and your channel partner could potentially steal your funds or something Is it too loud? It just seems like the two women in my life have just been fighting outside the office door (laughs) for the last 10 minutes.
0: I've heard quite a bit of it. I'll be curious to hear how that comes out. But you know, maybe it adds uh, ambiance. You know, you are the dad. After
1: I remember someone saying, like, love those Bitcoin podcasts where your dog is barking in the background.
0: We know everyone's just a dad doing this at home. Yeah, one podcast I listened to, their dog barks, and it's the quintessential bark noise. And I just wish I had it as a soundboard bite. It's the like the quintessential dog bark. Now Levi's Levi's a great dog, but he doesn't have that big dog wolf. You know. He's got a really cute bark. But and you
1: know, bark. dog barks are different in different countries. Because in Russia, dogs go guff, 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 but here they go bark or woof. Are
0: are you are you having are you having a go at me right now? Is this are you pulling my leg right now?
1: No, I mean it, it's just like the cultural word for a dog bark oh, is I different. See. I see, I see, I gotcha.
0: Wow. And yeah,
1: in, Ch- in China as well, but I can't remember what it is. It's like wah wah wah. Doesn't sound like that at
0: all. <laughs> Chinese
1: dogs sometimes wah, wah, yeah. wah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You can see it. Remember, we do like to hear from you. You can email us, Dadpod at protonmail.com. You could post on Weapon X when dad happens to fire it up at Dadpod, Or why not join the live Matrix chat room, which is popping along right now. We have a matrix channel and all of that we have it linked in the show notes it's pretty cool it's like a decentralized chat system is it the smoothest and bestest ever no but it is pretty cool and i think the ultimate way because it's a way to send a little value into the show if you got some value but also it gets your message read on the show and it gives us a little value for reading that and answering your questions as well so there's the boost we'll have links to boost in the show notes as well fountain Podverse, o castomatic i think those are the top i think people should probably consider true fans you have to sign up to use it which i know can be a deterrent but the team behind it's pretty good and they have lots of little mechanisms to earn sats in there to like just incentivize people to use the interface and uh yeah, that's kind of neat truefans.fm for a new podcasting 2.0 app
1: and our baller booster this week is cultivator with two boosts of one two three four five sats these are space balls boosts though we don't have the sound effect one two three four five i have the same combination on my luggage oh and we need to record that <laughs> The 2008 recession has never lifted for many of us. I went back to school and finished up a degree right after the crash, and my earnings have been depressed ever since. Once you are on a lower wage trajectory, it can become almost impossible to escape it. Friends that never finished their degrees, even just a few years before me, have consistently out-earned me. Perhaps it was my sector, not sure. It appears that the coin father did not have his lightning alchemy properly balanced. And so here is another attempt in hopes that he will receive the sats I'm trying to bestow him. I see. I think my node is very unbalanced. And my channel balancing tools have failed. So I think I need to upgrade the node, but I'm scared.
0: Cultivator, you are a gentleman for trying again. And I, you know, I really, you guys, if you've listened to the show for a while, you know when the show started, I was extremely very, very, very pro-Lightning. Bullish, if you will. But as time goes on, and I watch individuals try to manage channels, especially in high-fee environments, I, I don't think I'm really recommending light, Lightning for average plebs. I think it's great for impres- infrastructure. infrastructure for merchants, you know, for people like a business like JB or Fountain to do all the back-end plumbing for podcasting. But for us individuals, man, it's a lot to manage. And the tooling's a little bit rough. I thank you, Cultivator, too, for, uh, you know, sharing that about the 2008 recession that's still impact on you. I agree. It's, uh, you know, just couple of decisions in your 20s, and it's kind of hard to really change that trajectory. And then you have everything that's really happened in the last 15 years that really has been just policy after policy and environment after environment that really has disadvantaged the middle class. It's, it's it's you know, thank God for Bitcoin is where I'm at, really, because we needed something that was outside the system, clearly. And, you know, people say Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Where Well, the shared need that we all collectively have is one of the intrinsic values of something like Bitcoin that is outside the system. being out. Outside the system is one of its intrinsic value. Appreciate that boost and appreciate you trying to make sure that follow-up boost got in. Sir Lurksalot comes in with 10,000 sats. Boost! For my favorite low noise boys, <laughs> gotta keep the high signal elevated. Thanks. Thank you, Lurks. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: Jittering Blender also sent in ten thousand sats. Thank you for the tip of setting my fountain username in the last episode. No pressure, but if JB sent up, but if JB set up a way to boost your website and pay with whatever Lightning client we want, that would be amazing. Thank you for another enjoyable episode, and thank you so much for your suggestion and support.
0: I completely agree, Jittering. I was having a conversation with a developer this week saying the biggest. Thing that Boost need right now is just a website that understands the value tags in the RSS feed, where you can put a Boost username, a Boost amount, and a Boost message. Then you hit send, and the next screen is just a lightning QR code invoice. And you could scan it with Strike, or Cash App, or Zeus, or Phoenix, or whatever and it would exponentially open up who can boost because not everybody wants to switch podcast apps and i understand that we had it for 5 minutes on fountain fm and then when they rolled out fountain fm 1.0 they took it away and for 5 minutes i was able to tell people go there you can boost you don't you can use any Lightning app you want. If anybody out there knows anybody that's building this or has any way of building this, please contact me. There is value in it for me. I have been discussing it with the Podhome FM platform, and it is something on their longer-term roadmap. But that's just one platform. But I agree, jittering, and thank you for grabbing Fountain so you could get that message in. Though, really appreciate that. it comes in with ten thousand sats. I'd love to hear if one of those Bitcoin buy tips for mom quote unquote ever gets a conversation going for you Chris I tend to only respond for questions from friends and family which means we basically never talk about it
1: that is the way to go Halleck don't bother
0: yeah I did get one follow up question and she asked I have a Coinbase account is it okay if I use that and I thought well I guess <laughs> I mean what do you tell mom right I was like well I could tell her to go try River you know a Cash App I tell her you know an ETF when those come out because this was before the ETFs a little bit um, and then, then after the ETF when she had the follow up questions and that was a tough question to answer and if she didn't already have a coinbase account for whatever reason um i probably would have told her to go with river i think or you know do i really expect mom to ever sweep that in a cold storage i do not i do not so absolutely not maybe an etf for somebody like mom and it just wouldn't be safe for someone who
1: might not be super tech savvy
0: well, and if she wants the money in 10 years versus, say, me, like 30 years or whatever, there's a whole different, like, trust level of the, like, for her, an ETF, a 10 year, it's probably a good bet she's going to be able to get that money out in 10 years from an ETF. Like, you know, BlackRock's not going away in 10 years. So, the risk is probably pretty low for somebody like her. It's just not, you know, it just doesn't provide her a hedge against the US dollar, which I feel like is one of the ultimate advantages to holding your own Bitcoin, is you get to take advantage of that outside-the-system property of it that I was just talking about.
1: Nat gas Immersion sent in a mega row of sticks 11,111 sats with the message thank you fellas and thank, thank you, you
0: too I wonder with a name like Nat Gas, uh, if you have any thoughts on the fan of Nat Gas. Mirror Morals Podcast is back with a row of ducks 2,222 sats Using so, Do you have any proof of documentation that Spotify is doing DAI for shows like yours or mine? Because that doesn't sound right. I can imagine them doing it on shows they are partnered with. But when I use an app, I never came across them doing this. Be breaking a cardinal rule of a podcast app. I don't know. I really don't know. I have I have the JB shows on Spotify because I also have them on YouTube. Right. And to me, they're kind of the same thing. Would I be surprised if YouTube runs a pre-roll even though we don't monetize our channel? No, that wouldn't surprise me. We've turned off monetization. I bet you there's still ads. So I wouldn't be too surprised if Spotify starts doing it too if they're not already. I think there's just that whole, if you give it to Spotify, you're kind of just letting them do whatever they want with it. Do they do that now? I don't know.
1: Right. So that was just hearsay on my part, mere mortals. I just, for some reason, do not like Spotify. I don't like the way they bought podcasts that I briefly liked and then took them onto their platform and closed the gate. I think that's very anti-ethos of podcasting. I don't want to use your stupid app that wants to identify me and sell my data. I want to use an open source podcasting app that doesn't do that. So there's just a lot of reasons for me to not engage with Spotify. And maybe that was a mistake in terms of making the podcast available to more people. But I guess that's just still how I feel about them.
0: Yeah, I struggle with it myself. Um, You know, I've been there since they had podcasting and I I still struggle with it. Same with YouTube. I Actually, have a harder time with YouTube. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. Though really, some thought provoking boosts. Uh, we had we had several under uh, the. Uh, is it a two thousand stack cutoff? I think so. We had several I think it's under two thousand. Yeah. Yeah. So we had some nice boosts this week. I don't have totals because my script was a little wonky, but uh, appreciate everybody who boosted in. This is a value for value podcast. And we're always trying to get that total up just simply because it is a massive time investment for the Bitcoin dad. It's not so much for me. I mean, I, I have the easy part of the job, but it is hours and hours of work for him. And so any value you get from the show, that you want to send back in and include a message. We really appreciate. And we have links to some of those ways to do it in the show notes. Chris, are you sort of a producer? And host on this podcast? Yeah, maybe assistant producer, right? Because I kind of come in and I, you know, I bang up the show notes. I I punch them up a bit, right? That's what I, add some supplementals or something.
1: You're also an advisor too, because I'll have some problem and you'll be like, oh Mm, yeah, you should try this thing I did 20 years ago.
0: You're right. I should add another, we should get another split for me. Right. You're right. I should have an advisor split. split.
1: (laughs) I I mean, you should be taking like 90%, right? That's the model. Yeah please. This has been your Bitcoin dad pod recorded on February 2nd, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin dad and I'm here remotely as always with
0: With, with me. It's me. It's Chris. Thank you. Thank you everybody for being here. We'll see you next time.